compared to the other side? Does it feel like rock hard? Does it feel really soft and squishy, like there's no tone at all? So that might indicate some weakness in the muscle. Is there one really taut band or kind of knot of tissue that I can feel that I don't feel on the other side? That's all information that therapists or pelvic health therapists can glean from an internal examination. However, there are so many ways to assess pelvic floor function without ever doing an internal exam. Painful sex, peeing when you sneeze, heavy menstrual bleeding, hemorrhoids, these are just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to crap women deal with after childbirth, surgery, or just living life as a woman. Yet no one talks about it. How can we live our best life as a woman, mom, partner, and athlete without having to settle for average sex or dirty pants? This is the question, and this podcast will dive into real answers. If you get offended easily, this is not the podcast for you. We get real, and sometimes real isn't pretty or proper. If you have young ones nearby, we suggest you put in headphones. We are Joss and Jenny, and welcome to Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs. Before we get started, if you like what you hear, follow us on Instagram, at the Vagina Doc and at Pelvic Boxer. DM us and we will personally answer your questions. For this episode and all future episodes, please keep in mind our disclaimer. The information on this podcast is intended as general information only and should not be substituted or used in lieu of medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Welcome back to Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs. I am your host, Dr. Jocelyn Conley, and today I have a very special guest, a familiar guest, Dr. Jenny LaCrosse. Jenny, thank you for agreeing to be the guest of today's show. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me, Jocelyn. I'm doing well here, just like everybody else, kind of figuring out what this new normal looks like. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. I am with you on that. It's definitely a change of being inside a lot or being away from my friends and wearing a mask everywhere, but it's... I've realized a lot about where my relationships are. I'm actually talking to people a lot more than I did in the past. Like my friends from college, we have regular happy hours. My family, we talk regularly and I've learned a lot. How about you? Uh, I think the same. We're faced with big changes like this. It really does bring back to the heart of what relationships do we value and what things that we participate in do we value and where do we want to put our time yeah I said to myself it's such a good time to be studying something like a student whether it's you're in college or in grad school and you're still working on your PhD so what is life like with your PhD right now and tell us more about how you are both a clinician and you are in completing your PhD So my PhD program is a hybrid program, which means that a lot of our courses are completely online. And then there are some courses where there's an online component and there's an in-person component. And then there's optional in-person practicums that you can do. 
So for this semester, I'm in two courses. I'm in Statistics 2 and a course called Academic Issues. Um, Statistics 2 is completely online. Academic Issues is a hybrid course. So we were supposed to have a big PhD retreat in March that got canceled, was then um, put in an online format, which I don't think was how it was intended to be viewed, but still incredibly helpful. So just making that pivot was really interesting. And then we actually did have an in-person class earlier in the semester before COVID happened. So honestly, for me, for TWU, I think they've handled this incredibly well, but all of this really happened around spring break. So what happened is that even though the classes and the content that I'm going through was online, all classes were asked to halt for an additional week after spring break. So instructors that were familiar with online presentation software could help those that were not um, and could just help to expedite things that were completely in person and online. And then honestly, we've resumed. And from my PhD standpoint, it's kind of like COVID hasn't happened, it's, which is almost nice in a sense that there's a lot of normalcy there. It has sparked some very interesting conversations with classmates. But that has really helped to keep me grounded and keep me on a schedule. As for the clinician side, I work for a private practice. Um, we are still open. We're seeing emergency cases. Um, that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But I am only part-time. I work 12 hours a week. So now I'm down to about six hours a week. And not all of the, that time is spent in direct patient care. Um, so that definitely looks different, but I think it might look significantly less different than somebody that worked in the clinic 40 hours a week. Can you tell us a little bit about how, or tell us how your PhD, what you're doing with your PhD helps you as a clinician? Like what are you studying and why does it matter in moving the delivery of women's healthcare forward? So there's something really interesting um, called uh, knowledge translation. And so it's really looking at, or it's integrative knowledge translation. So it's abbreviated IKT. And it looks at how researchers and clinicians interact to promote scholarship and ultimately involve the people that are getting care in decisions about what kind of research is done, how research is driven, and then who has access to the research. So it's really interesting. Look it up, IKT, if you're interested. Um, and so what drove me to get a PhD was working in the clinic. I see a lot of the same things over and over again, but when I try to look things up on it, there nothing really exists. Or, um, you know, people ask me these questions. I had a hip surgery, a periacetabular osteotomy. So I, a lot of people ask me, get the same question. So I'm looking at researching it. I found one paper on it so far. Um, but if you've had this particular surgery, does that affect mode of delivery if somebody's had this, if a female's had the surgery and then they go to deliver? Um, the one paper that I found says no, but uh, really just wanting to get answers to the questions that we kind of already have data for, but it just hasn't been captured in a formalized way. Um, and ultimately, I think I'd like to move a little bit more into research because this is where I think we can make a really big difference in terms of getting 
more women access to the care they need, demonstrating its proved benefit, and ultimately going to third-party payers for those people that still use in-network or they use their insurance to say, hey, this is something that you should and you need to continue to pay for. What are some things that you wish you had data for but didn't besides like everything? So that really speaks to what I'm hoping part of my research stream will be. Um, following total hip replacements, urinary incontinence in females is incredibly prevalent and it, it happens to a lot of women. Um, I think there are papers that demonstrate the anatomical link between the hip and the pelvic floor, but we don't have a lot of good evidence to say that a total hip replacement is a risk factor or a predictive factor. So thinking about what we call a regression model in statistics, I have to pull that in since I'm in that class. Audience, it's okay if you have no idea what that is. Up until about five weeks ago, I didn't know what it was either. But really looking at, is this a correlation or is this a causation? Because if it's just correlated and I incidentally see it in the clinic, but one doesn't actually cause the other, what we're going to do for treatment is going to be very different. Yeah. So really looking at, I, pelvic pain is definitely something that I sometimes see in women following hip surgery, but more times than not, it's the urinary incontinence. So that's really what I'm interested in studying for my ultimate research stream and for my dissertation. Interesting. So what's that timeline like? Uh, timeline for the dissertation? Yeah. So if everything goes as planned, I am set to defend my dissertation at the end of the summer of 2022. Wow. Well, we need people like you and we need, I think from a clinic, speaking from a clinician, what frustrates me is that a lot of the methods that are used in research are not I mean, they're not realistic to do them in clinic and we're getting better. We're getting better here, but we need people that have been, that are still around what it's like to be a clinician, to be in the, the research arena as well. So you could say, well, this is great and all these methods are effective, but it's going to take 40 minutes to set up or the what is it, the attrition rate of people dropping off? Oh yeah, Barb would be proud. Nailed it. Um, is, is inevitable because of the demands of the follow-up and so on. So one thing we did not really talk about through any of our episodes is telling our listeners, what's it like to be a newer patient seeing a pelvic floor physical therapist. A lot of women are probably listening and we're part of their first point of contact, indirect contact, where they're in that, that period where they're debating whether or not to see someone. So can you explain what that process is for a newer patient? Is sure. It so usually uh, when you call and you get established as a new patient, whether that's your physician faxes over a prescription to the physical therapy clinic and they call you or your physician hands you a prescription and you take it 
to whatever clinic you want to go to, or maybe you live in a state where there's direct access. So you just say, hey, I want to go to physical therapy, and then you find somebody and get scheduled. The first thing, just like any doctor's appointment, is you're going to fill out paperwork. Sometimes the paperwork can be pretty expensive, but it's important to get background information. We can't know where we're headed if we don't know where we've been. So taking time to do a very good job on the paperwork is important. If you have a scheduled appointment time, um, please arrive early, usually about 30 minutes early, so that you're not cutting into your appointment time by still filling out paperwork. So just keep in mind that once you fill out the paperwork, the, the physical therapist that's gonna treat you needs time to actually read it over so that you're not just writing stuff to be pushed to the side. Now paperwork, I'm sorry. You do actually read it too. You, you hear people like, they didn't even read the paperwork. Well, the more, earlier you get, the more time we have to digest your paperwork too. And there are questions on paperwork that are, you know, yes, no questions. There's scaled questions to ask, uh, you know, on a scale of zero to 10, zero to no pain, 10 emergency pain, how bad is your pain right now? Um, but some of those questions are really insurance driven. So they're there because they have to be asked. But what we really care about, or I guess I can't speak for the collective we, so I'll say what I really care about are more of the open-ended questions. It's important to hear your story and your symptoms in the context of your story because everybody's different. So after you fill out the paperwork, the physical therapist will come out and get you. And just like at a doctor's appointment, but with way more time, we're going to talk about what's on the paperwork and we're going to ask to hear your story. Um, the paperwork is a guide so that we can start coming up with what I would call a differential diagnosis in our head. What are all the things that could possibly be contributing to the symptoms that you're having? And as we talk to you and we ask more specific questions about particular things that you've written on, the, on your intake paperwork, and as you tell us your story, that gives us better clues to say, hmm, I'm thinking that these four things are equally likely, so this is going to drive the different clinical tests that I'm going to do to either confirm or rule out these particular diagnoses. So this subjective part can look very different for different people. If you have a very complex history, that's important to get that information to the therapist so that they understand it. So uh, very rarely, but sometimes that might be the whole first visit I have with somebody is I spend the whole 45 minutes just collecting information. Um, and while this might seem like a waste of time to you because you came in to be examined and to go home with things today, if we don't know what's actually going on and we just do tests and measures that flare your symptoms even more and create more threat to your nervous system and then send you home with the wrong exercises, that's a complete waste of your time. So really think about your story before you come into therapy. And if you really do kind of want to get to the examination and intervention pieces, what are the key parts of your story? What do you really want your therapist to know? Of the symptoms that you have, therapists, just like doctors, will address all of your symptoms. But if you have, let's say, a 45-minute appointment, what's the most important or most bothersome thing to you today so that we have a, a starting place or an anchoring point, and then we build off of that? 
So once you get through this objective portion, then we move to what we call the objective portion. So that's where the physical therapist is going to do different tests to try to gather information to say, what do I think is the physical therapy diagnosis? And I just want to make the the caveat that physical therapists within their scope of practice are not allowed to make a medical diagnosis. So we, you know, we can't say that you, oh, you have a prolapse or, oh, you have overactive bladder syndrome. But what we look at is we can keep those in mind knowing like, oh, they might have this, the patient might have this medical diagnosis, but I'm not treating the medical diagnosis. I'm looking at a movement diagnosis. So uh, what's an example of a test that we might do? We might look at your range of motion. We might look at how you perform a squat. We might look at how you, if let's say you're having leakage with jumping rope, we might have a jump rope and say, okay, I want you to jump rope and assess the quality of movement. Um, we might palpate or feel different structures around the pelvis and the hip and the spine region to see, does this reproduce any of the symptoms that you typically have? Um, uh, the thing that may or may not happen at an appointment with women's health is there may or may not be an internal examination or an intravaginal inside the vagina examination of the pelvic floor muscles. So we do know that to really get to those muscles, it takes one to two glove lubricated fingers. There's no speculum, there's no stirrups. We are not medical doctors, but one to two glove lubricated fingers inserted vaginally so that we can feel the muscles. And just like any other muscle in the body, so let's say you came in for shoulder pain, well, your physical therapist is probably gonna press on the muscles around your shoulder to see, can I elicit the pain when I press on those muscles? What does that muscle tone feel like compared to the other side? Does it feel like rock hard? Does it feel really soft and squishy, like there's no tone at all? So that might indicate some weakness in the muscle. Is there one really taut band or kind of knot of tissue that I can feel that I don't feel on the other side? That's all information that therapists or pelvic health therapists can glean from an internal examination. However, there are so many ways to assess pelvic floor function without ever doing an internal exam. So that is something that your therapist should have a conversation with, with you to say, this is the benefit of doing the type of external assessment I'd like to do. Here are the benefits of doing an internal assessment. Um, and it really ultimately, you two making the decision together what's going to be the right course of action for you. Nobody and no therapist should ever dictate to you that this is what we're doing. I'd say if you have a therapist like that, you should pack up your things and run out of there as fast as possible. So kind of moving to the end of the visit, once the examination is done, your therapist, just like a doctor, is going to sit down and say, hey, these are the findings. This is what this means in the context of your story, and this is what I think is going on. Then you're going to discuss a plan. Okay, based on what I'm seeing, I think that we might need X number of visits. That can sometimes be challenging because everybody's different. So that is just, again, an anchoring point that we expect to see a pretty significant amount of improvement, let's say, in six visits. That's kind of an arbitrary number. But it might be less, it might be more, it just kind of depends on how things go. What are the expectations? Well, here are the things that we're going to need to work through in therapy, and this is how it's going to help you meet your goals. So goal setting is another important part of that first physical therapy visit. 
But for me, that's something that I do throughout the entire session. It's not just, okay, tell me what you want to do. I write it down and that's it. So I think, again, having these anchoring points is really important, but it's not just a, I ask you one time, you tell me one thing, and then we never talk about it again. So after we go through all of that, your therapist is gonna give you tons of information. We do not expect you to remember all that information. I think what's the statistic that people remember like 20% of what they hear? Not even. So it's just, I'm sorry? I think it's like 10%, even less than 20%. Very low. low. So it's just, again, to give you an anchoring point. So it might be so overwhelming that you don't have questions right then. That's okay. I give my email address to people. So if something comes up after the fact, just I say, just shoot me an email. I check my email all the time. I'm not going to respond to you at midnight, but uh, I'll see it the next day and I'll respond to you. Um, but kind of giving people um, something to start off with, with the expectation that things will be reviewed as much as needed, and then setting up expectations. Um, just like if you went to see a doctor and they gave you a medicine and you came back and said you weren't better and they asked, did you take the medicine and you said no? Well, there, you know, you have, there has to be kind of an agreement that um, if we're going to come up with a plan together and you agree to the plan, then you have to participate in the plan. So with that being said, it's okay if sometimes you go home and you can't do the one thing that was assigned to you for homework. Um, life happens and really our goal as the therapist is to figure out where you're at, what's going to work for you, and you get to decide what your home program looks like. I meet a lot of resistance from people on this sometimes because I ask questions and I say, okay, well, how many, how often do you think you can do this a week? What? And then the common response is, well, I don't know. You just tell me. Well, if I just tell you, we actually know that the likelihood of you doing that thing is significantly lower than if you tell me what you're going to do. I'm never going to let a patient do something that's dangerous or that's going to move them in the direction away from their goals. So if somebody throws out something unreasonable, we'll have a conversation about it. But I like people to set their own programs based on what we do within a session. I agree. So I think that's a, a, that's the summary, I'm sure I missed some things, but that's kind of the general what you should expect at a first visit. What I'm gonna add on to what Jenny described is that we find a lot of stuff that we can work on. And it if we go and we put all that on you, you're not gonna, you didn't re, you're not gonna retain it, nor are you going to do it because you're gonna be overwhelmed. We need to know how much time you're able to dedicate it to X and Y. Maybe even it's X, not even X and Y. Um, and when you come back and say, well, you're the doctor and I'm like, well, yes. Uh, however, I don't know how, what, what your lifestyle looks like when you leave here. So you have, we have to work together to come up with something that's realistic. So having boundaries as a patient and going into your visit, knowing those boundaries saying like, this is my financial 
what I have from a financial perspective to put towards my care. This is a time perspective. This is um, what the most important thing I want to get out of this is, is so key to maximizing your visit. And knowing that, okay, you let's say you're leaking instantly with running. You're not, it takes time to be able to run for three miles without leakage. It's not going to go, you're not going to go to uh, see someone and be cured within a few visits. So it's a stepwise progression and knowing your boundaries and communicating those with us, we can give you a realistic time frame that's more accurate. So that being said, Jenny, um, what do you think about how do you manage your boundaries with all the things that you do with your PhD and being a clinician? Just as a woman, because we try to do a lot. So I always tell my patients, I'll never ask you to do something or do something to you that I haven't had done on myself or that I haven't tried. And I think it's unfair to ask people to set boundaries when I don't set boundaries. So boundary setting is something that I've been spending the past year really trying to work on. And I have a lot of passions, most of them center around women's health. Um, and so there's a lot of volunteer opportunities. And if you, you know, I have all these things on my plate, and then you get an email about this other thing, and you're like, ooh, new shiny thing, that sounds great. But in reality, um, I want to keep my commitments to the things that I've committed to. And so I've started looking at things in my life and saying what things have really, you know, brought me joy and fulfilled what I wanted them to fulfill, but are sustainable without me right now. And so listeners, I am very with a sad heart, um, having to report that uh, I am going to be stepping away from the podcast for a while. Um, and I'm going to let Jocelyn take over. This was actually um, her idea to begin with. This is her brainchild. I feel confident that she is going to continue on and hopefully she will be courteous enough at some point to maybe let me come be a guest host with her. But right now, um, my patients are my priority and my PhD has to be my priority. And everybody talks about work-life balance. I'm married, I have a husband and I have two puppies. And I like to spend time with them. And so I'm setting the boundary to say that within a week, I need to be spending some time with them and not sitting in my dungeon, uh, I mean office, uh, doing a lot of work on my computer. So it's a challenge every day and you always feel like you're letting somebody down. But ultimately, if you don't set boundaries, the only person you're letting yourself down or the only person you're letting down is yourself. And you have to live with you every day. So that's just something to think about. So if you, if you bring this back to you as the patient, if you are a patient, if you can't do what your therapist is asking, you can't feel guilty about it. You got to know your boundaries. And while I am so sad that Jenny is leaving, it's not anything personal. And she is leading it, our profession forward to ultimately help all of you guys, all of us as women. So Jenny, I would be more than happy and willing to have you as a guest host. Uh, you inspire me 
every day. You're my go-to person that I ask for advice. So in any way that I could support you, I'm, I'm behind you and I will miss you and I'll probably misbehave, but that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. Misbehavior is sometimes where ideas are born. But I, I want to go back to something you said that, you know, within boundaries as a patient, if there's something that your therapist talks to you about and you feel like you can't do it, have a conversation. That's exactly what Jocelyn and I did. I was kind of at a breaking point and I said, what can be sustained without me? And I thought it was the podcast. So I called Jocelyn and I said, hey, I, like I'm, I'm time poor right now. I don't think that I can dedicate the time that is required to make this a good podcast. What do you think about that? And it, it's a conversation and a back and forth to say, okay, well, what is going to work? And again, this it, a physical therapy relationship should not be a dictatorship. It should be a partnership. So when you start to see signs of a dictatorship, you need to run the other direction. Yeah. And it's okay. Like if your physical therapist is good or a reasonable person, I mean, just like anything else, some people don't click and you don't feel comfortable to be open about a huge piece of your history. And the only person that ultimately loses is you. So it's time to wrap up this episode so that Jenny can uh, move on with her day. Jenny, it's been an absolute, I mean, I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity to do this with you. I'm going to miss you so much. And I would love to have you on in the future. I wish you all the best. And I can't wait to see all the great things that, that start to happen for you and for because of you, I should say. Well, thanks, Jocelyn. I've enjoyed our journey together and I'm excited to see uh, where you head moving forward. Thank you so much for listening to the show. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Also, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the.vaginadoc and at pelvicboxer. If there's a particular topic you want to hear about, send us a message and we'll make it happen. See you next time on Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs.